Stop asking yourself, why need? Instead, ask yourself, what now? Hey everybody, welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I'm with my guest, Terry. Hi, Tiffany. I'm Terry Kozlowski. I am a podcaster, an author, a life coach, and a survivor of childhood trauma. I look forward to being with your audience today. Yes, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Absolutely. Glad to be here. What is your earliest remembrance of your childhood? Some of my early memories are of my sister and I in Germany. My dad uh, was in the military, so I'm an army brat. And we spent uh, several years in Germany when I was three, four, and five. And I remember there watching my mother try to deal with my sister and I and realizing that my mother wasn't really good at what she was doing. And what I mean by that is there were several instances where she would take a nap and just let my sister and I do whatever we wanted. Or And really what I found out later was it wasn't that she was napping or she was an alcoholic and passed out. So as I got older, things like us going out, very distinct memory of Kris Kringle Mart in Germany, which is the big Christmas market. And we were getting off the trolley to go to Kris Kringle Mart. And I got off in front of my mother. My mother got off but my sister didn't get off. And my mother's walking away and I'm running after the trolley, screaming for my sister. And the trolley stops and the trolley door opens and I run up to the door and my sister is standing there sobbing and I'm picking her up and pulling her out of the trolley. I'm probably four. Oh my God. And I take her by the hand and my mother realizes now that we aren't with her and comes running after and is scolding Tammy my sister, for not getting off the trolley. She is a whole year younger than I am, actually 11 months to the day. So she's, you know, if I'm four, she's three. Right. Three and four-year-olds are not responsible to get on and off of anything. (laughs) So those are some of the early memories of my mother. As I got older, I I knew when my mother had something from the special cabinet. There was a special cabinet that we had. And when she had something special from the cabinet, she ended up, normally ended up falling asleep because she would end up passing out. But one of the other things with my mother is that she um, was an epileptic and she was taking phenobarbital at the time. And phenobarbital and alcohol do not mix. So she would have grand mal seizures. So again, I'm five, six, and I am, I've learned to take the, um, wooden spoon and put it on her tongue so she doesn't swallow her tongue um, and pull her because, you know, she would have these seizures in a very small room. So I restroom. So I pull her out of the um, powder room so that, you know, as she's thrashing around having her grandma seizure, she's not hurting herself. You know, so these are some of the memories I have early of my mother. I also have very fond memories of my mother during that period of time where we're standing at the stove stirring and making macaroni and cheese um, or a tuna casserole or something. So I do have fond memories of my mother and my mother and I were very, very close. And I think part of that was because she was leaning on me to make sure my sister was taken care of. Yeah. That wasn't so, your job, especially no, so it, young. No, it it was never my job. And it was, I was in my mid thirties before I finally said, it is not my job to take care of my sister because it ended up, you know, one of those things that got put upon me, not just from my mom, but also from uh, my dad and my stepmother that I was responsible for my sister. And until my late thirties, it was, I finally realized, no, number one, she's a grown adult at this point. So I certainly am not responsible, but I'm, you know, it's never somebody else's responsibility to take care of a sibling ever. Even if you are 16 and the sibling is three, you can be asked to take care of that child for a period of time, but it's not your responsibility to be taking care of that child. Absolutely. I could not agree with that more. So your dad obviously was probably gone a lot because he was 
active duty? Um, active duty, yes, but he was always in an office medical environment. So we were in Germany, and um, when he he retired because they were my parents divorced. We had moved back from Germany to Maryland. Somehow he got to stay in Maryland for like six years, which is ex- quite long. Um, but when that time was up, they wanted to send it to Okinawa. And by that point, my parents had divorced. They were divorced um, in the early 70s. And my dad actually got custody of two small girls. He was the first man in the state of Maryland uh, to win custody of two small girls. Um, and that's a great thing. But also, for, as part of the story, my mother didn't show up to the hearing. So she defaulted. And so I look over the life, uh, you know, my relationship with my mother. That was one of the first abandonments that she had done. Now, in her mind, and she said this all of her living days, she said that she gave my sister and I up to my dad. And in her mind, I think that she believes that and that she believes that was that was the best thing for her to do. And from the grand perspective that we all have, Looking backwards, it was absolutely the best thing she could have done was just not show up. My dad got custody and we were then safe from her and her addictions. Did she try to reach out or did she disappear for a chunk of time? Well, they were divorced when I was eight. And from eight until 11, we saw her maybe three times. We didn't see her a whole lot. Uh, mainly because we left the state of Maryland and moved to Pennsylvania. And when we did that, she stayed in Maryland. She, then she ended up in New York. And then she decided that she was going to move to New Mexico. So on our her way to New Mexico, she stopped in to visit. And that was the last time I saw her. I think I was nine at the time until I was 11. Um, because she was now out in New Mexico and you kind of yeah, that was not a time where you would hop in the car and go visit anybody. Um, this would have been in the late 70s, early 80s. My mother said that she uh, had been going to AA and called and asked my dad if we could come visit for the summer. And of course, my sister and I, who haven't seen our mom for two years, uh, very much want to go. And my dad acquiesces and lets us go. And the first two weeks were fabulous. And some of the best memories I have of my mother, of swimming, of doing fun things together, occurred in those two weeks. Then she started drinking. And once she started drinking, all of my little codependent behavior kicked in. I was serving drinks, and I was tossing drinks, and I was cleaning up and cleaning up uh, vomit, making sure everybody, because she would have parties that, and everybody would pass out and you would cover them up and do all those things at the age of 11. Make sure my sister was in bed, make sure everybody, you know, we ate, all of that. And my mother was a functional alcoholic. And that means she held on a job. And so she would get up the next morning and go to work. And at the, she got paid weekly and we would go and Friday afternoons, go cash the check, get money orders to pay the weekly rental bill for the efficiency apartment she was in, buy groceries. And, you know, we had this little routine. So during all of this, as things got progressively worse, the parties got more involved. I realized she was also a drug addict now. So she had only been an alcoholic when she was with my dad, but now she's a drug addict. And one night, I'm watching my mother's best friend. Um, I've put my sister to bed because now they're giving my sister alcohol. So she ends up yet at the age of 10. She is now drinking alcohol and passing out. And I, I had put her to bed and I saw my mother's best friend go in and check on her. And she came out, went in the restroom. Well, I went in the restroom and found a syringe and I went and checked on my sister and she was asleep. So I just left her be. My sister slept for three days. They drugged her. I was cognizant and an aware child, and I had my little ear on her chest, watching her breathe and, you know, making sure that, you know, I heard her heartbeat and everything. She slept for three days, Um, woke up groggy, but and very hungry, but she slept for three days. Uh, That night, everybody passes out. I'm covering everybody up. I go into the bedroom and after parties, I was now locking the bedroom door because there was lots of strange people around. 
Uh, I wake up to a gag in my mouth and my hands and feet tied and three uh, men rape me and my mother standing in the corner with her best friend watching so that they could get free drugs. Wow. I don't remember anybody leaving. I don't remember getting untied. Uh, I woke up the next day and there was nobody there. My sister was sleeping beside me, um, but my mom stayed away for three days. Everybody stayed away for the three days. We were left. We were again abandoned during that time period. Um, my sister finally wakes up. I'm making sure she's eating, and boom, she's asking about my mother. I don't know what to tell her, and I'm, I said, you know, I think we need to call Daddy. It's time to go home, and my mother shows up, and it's Friday, and we do our little go to the grocery store, um, get the money orders. I walk over and pay the weekly rent. And when I come back over to the efficiency apartment, our suitcases are on the stoop. And my mother says, it's time for my sister and I to leave. She shuts the door and locks it. That's another abandonment. Now I'm on the streets of Albuquerque, New Mexico, not a good part of town, by the way, and 3,000 miles away from my dad, who's in Pennsylvania, and have to figure out how do I get home. One of the things that I think was could have been, was for me at the time, a saving grace that turned into a problem later on was exactly what we talked about, about the responsibility for somebody else. The last thing my dad said to me as I was leaving to go visit my mother, he lifted up my little chin and looked me in the eye and said, you take care of your baby sister and kissed me on the forehead. Last thing he said to me, that clicked in because my sister is now crying and slightly hysterical and take care of your baby sister is exactly what my ego used to figure out what do we do now. I didn't have a breakdown. I did. I don't remember crying about the rape. I'm 11 and in the early 80s, I didn't know what sex was. So I don't know what happened to me. I don't have language to even talk about what happened to me to let alone process anything. And by the way, it was four years before I remembered my mother and her best friend were in the room because my little 11 year old mind could not handle that at the time. So I, tr I talked, I'm trying to talk to my sister and I said, we should go to the police because, you know, I knew enough that we're abandoned, we're, we're alone. We, we really need to go to the police. Well, <laughs> my sister pointed out if we went to the police, mommy would get in trouble. And codependent children don't want their abusers to, you know, get in trouble. We hide and protect them because, you know, they're weak and we are the strong ones. So we don't go to the police. We go to my mother's best friends, who is all part and knows exactly what had happened. And... I asked to use the phone. Tammy, you know, runs into her arms and is sobbing and telling her what's happening. And I call my dad. I remember certain things about that conversation. There's a lot I don't remember about the conversation. What I remember is I needed to, I told him that it was time to go home. I don't think I told him mommy kicked us out. I don't think I was processing enough to know that that's what happened. It's time for us to go home. He asked if we were in a safe place. And I said, only for a little bit, because I knew I wasn't in a safe place, but I didn't have anywhere else to go. And um, he said, you know, I need to make a, a some phone calls to see about getting you home. Because we had tickets to go back like six weeks out or four four weeks out. So he had to go and get things arranged. So he calls back. and. Um, tells us that we have airplane tickets for the next morning. Are we okay where we are until then? And I said, yes, I think I was okay until the next day. He said, do I have a ride to the airport? Now, nobody we knew had a vehicle. None of these people had cars. Um, the day that we arrived, my mother had a friend with her. His name was Alan. And he had a cowboy hat and cowboy boots and big belt buckle. He was a little tiny guy. He was, um, he worked at Los Alamos. He was a nuclear physicist. Have no idea how he knew my mother, but they knew each other. I believe he knew and was aware that my mother was an alcoholic because when 
he went to leave, he handed me his business card. What adult man hands 11-year-old girl his business card? And he says to me, if you need anything, anything at all, you call me and I'll make sure you have it. So I called Alan, told him my mom had kicked us out and I needed a ride to the airport and gave him the address of where I was. And not only did he come get us, he took us to breakfast. He walked us hand in hand onto the airplane. And then he disappeared and never saw Alan again. Alan was an angel that was sent to make sure that I safely got out of the situation I was in. Again, I'm an aware child. We get off the airplane and my sister goes running into my dad's arms and I walk up to him, look him up into the eyes and said, I need to go to therapy. I'm 11. I shouldn't. Nowadays, everybody knows what therapy is. Children know what therapy is. I wasn't supposed to know what therapy was, let alone be aware enough to ask for it. So I knew what happened to me shouldn't have happened. I knew it wasn't my fault, but I also knew I had no idea really what happened. So I didn't think I knew how to handle it. I didn't know what to do next. So I knew I needed help. So I went to therapy. Uh, that was, we got in on a Saturday, Monday morning, I was in therapy. And I was in therapy up until I was 18 years old. During that period of time, however, in the early 80s, they didn't know what to do with me because I didn't have the language to say I was sexually assaulted. I didn't have the language to, at the time because I, was, I didn't remember that my mother was the reason all this happened. So I never, during my years of therapy, talked about the rape once. Wow. Never hinted about it. Now, I think they knew because I told my dad about six months after I came back what happened. So he knew. So I'm sure he told. But... It was even as I got older and I knew what sex was, at that point, I was ashamed. So I didn't talk about it. Because the other thing that happens is you have, although my mother wasn't communicating with us, my, her best friend was calling and, you know, saying, th and the night that we had to spend at her house, when my sister finally fell asleep, she came to me and said, you know, something bad can happen to your sister if you talk, if you say anything. So I had seeds planted in my head that my sister could be harmed. And what did my dad tell me to do? Take care of your baby sister. So I didn't sleep that night, <laughs> to say the least. And now I believe that if I say anything to anybody, something bad's going to happen to my sister. So I don't talk about it. And so my healing journey, it, despite all the therapy I had, and I Therapy taught me exactly what people needed to hear from me so they would think that I was okay. Because when I got a good reply from, let's see, I went to a counselor, I went to a psychiatrist and a psychologist during my period of time. And the psychiatrist wanted to drug me. That was the one thing my dad was very, very good at. I was never drugged during this time period. Yes, I got depressed, but that's to be expected. But and I, and, you know, I got suicidal for, for a period of time, but not to the point where my dad ever got concerned. I was still in therapy three days a week, every week from the time I got back until I turned 18. So, you know, if they saw signs of anything, it was never communicated to me, but I know what was going in my, on in my head. I know what, how I was feeling. So during that period, you know, you do everything you can just to survive. And I was in survival mode. And as I moved forward and I remembered things about my mother, part of that was, you know, upset with myself for why didn't I remember that? Well, of course she was there. <laughs> you know, she was there when I covered everybody up. Why wouldn't she be there when all this happened? Um, so that, you know, there's that you know, angst with myself for not remembering. Um, then, of course, the shame of and to not tell anybody what was going on. So I had all of this going on with me. And then I get to college. And during the, from the time, because I was in therapy, I also knew that I had to let others know how I was doing. So again, that's, I know how to play that game. But also, 
I learned that if I told people that I had trauma, now I wouldn't wouldn't say child sexual abuse or anything because that's that's not what we would have called it then. <laughs> um, people my age didn't know how to handle it, so everybody stayed away, and. That was something I think I wanted because why if if I didn't have to deal with you, I, I didn't you didn't have to figure out, you know, how we were going to talk about things or God forbid you wanted to talk about boys and sex because I certainly didn't want to talk about sex at all. Um, so I went through where I was keeping everybody away on purpose by saying I had trauma. So, you know, be careful. Don't tap me on the shoulder. I'll come around and not because, you know, don't touch me. All that good stuff. I get to college and I have a male friend tell me that I get something out of my victimhood. And I got very angry at first because who are you to tell anything about my victimhood? But this guy was a friend and he he cared about me. So I had to pause and say, he's seeing something that I'm not. What is he seeing? And that's when I realized that by saying to somebody, Tiffany, I, you know, had childhood trauma and you don't know how to handle it. So you leave me alone from now on. I've pushed you away. Now I don't have to deal with it or other people. So that is what I realized. And I understood that there has to be a better way for me to communicate with people that I've had trauma without scaring everybody away. And that's when I decided that I was no longer a victim. That was the day I decided I was a survivor. And with that mindset shift, that one decision, two amazing things happened. Number one, I gained control of my life. And what I mean by that is I was I empowered myself by letting my mom and the three men that raped me that they were not going to affect my future anymore because And then I ended up taking responsibility for my life. And what that entails means that I can't blame my mother. I can't blame the three guys that molested me for anything of any choices I am now making. If I choose to push everybody away because I am not learning how to deal with my emotions or concern that you may not like me because I've had drama, then that's on me. My mother isn't in my life. Those three men are in my life. They're not here talking in my head to tell me, oh, Tiffany's not going to like me if I tell her. Yeah. Oh, you know, Tiffany wants me to be X, Y, and Z. So that's what I'm going to be because, you know, she likes the ballet and likes reading. So I'm going to like the ballet and reading, even though I hate dancing and, you know, reading's okay. So when, when we look at the masks and armor that we put on because of our trauma. Our healing process begins by understanding that we are responsible for the choices we make now. Yes, we may be triggered by the past, but we are responsible for the how we move forward. Yes, we may not be processing things correctly and we may make mistakes, but that doesn't mean that those mistakes are blamed on whoever traumatized us. We made those poor decisions. And I made lots of poor decisions. (laughs) But we made those poor decisions and we need to learn from them so that we can make better decisions. And as we move through our healing journey, we need to be able to recognize that when we are triggered, that the trigger is making us look backward. Yes, circumstances may be similar or caused us to be triggered, but the trigger and the ego is trying to protect us from our past. The issue is the past is not the present and it's certainly not the future. And the ego believes that the past is an indication of the future. And it's not. The only thing that is an indication of the future are the choices you make today, not the choices you made in the past. Choices you made in the past may have affected you and how you got to today. But the choices you make today is what moves you forward and what gives you the future. So that conversation was pivotal in my life and making that mindset shift to become uh, a survivor instead of being the victim and empowering me to take responsibility for the choices I was making and no longer blaming. 
Because when we let go of the blame and take the responsibility for ourselves is how we empower ourselves to say they don't have a say in my future. Absolutely. I love that. You were a child. You were making the decisions that you thought were best, not only for you, but for your sister. You had someone else to take care of when you were going through your own issues. Like Mm -hmm. that's a lot to take on. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. But I think that you are a wonderful person and what you have taken from it is just amazing. And the way you're you flip that is just great. I could not imagine watching my mom watching something like that happen. Did they drug you? No. No. And that's interesting because, you know, a lot of children of alcoholics end up with some sort of substance abuse. Um, and I did not go that route. (laughs) Also, a lot of um, child sexual abuse victims um, either be, you know, get very promiscuous or they're the prude. I am the prude, to say the least. (laughs) Um, So, you know, all the when we think about stereotypes, a lot of them fit for a reason. But that doesn't mean that everyone is promiscuous or everybody is a prude. It just means there's confusion about what our sexuality is and what is that used for because it was used against us so we either do everything we can to protect ourselves or we decide we're going to be in control and nobody's going to be able we're going to be the aggressors when it comes to our sexuality so you know both can be empowering but in different ways and right. sometimes and to sometimes they're empowering for a period of time because they are a good defense mechanism, but all defense mechanisms at some point end up harming you than helping you. Right. Cause you're holding it in. You're not getting it out. You're not facing it. Like one thing that I heard is like, you have to feel if you want to heal, you have to, you have to face it. If you want to get past it. One of the things that any trauma survivor knows is that we are very good at stuffing our feelings and i'm very prone to do that because i've had experience where when all hell breaks loose i have to take care of it so i have to stuff my emotions i have to handle the situation i've learned over time that after i am stoic and get through the crisis i will go have my mini breakdown whether that is crying into my pillow, punching the pillow, yelling and screaming, whatever it is that I need to release that, I am very aware of. And over years, that it's gotten be- much, much better where I can face a situation and then like, you know, whatever, at the end of a stressful day, I am more than willing to go ahead and have a, cu- a glass of Kahlua and sit and vegetate in front of the television watching a movie and you know say okay this is i need to rest i need to let this all go so that it's not going to continue to bother me as i move forward but dealing with those trauma emotions because we didn't deal with them or know how to deal with them properly you know when i was 11 or when i was 13 or when i was 16 those things that come up those triggers, we end up being triggered in ways that we don't understand. You know, why does the smell of sauerkraut take me back to a memory that's very nasty for me? It's because I keep associating sauerkraut with that memory instead of saying maybe some some other memory I have of sauerkraut with that was a happy memory. Why does all our memories go to that one. Well, the main reason is our ego is there to protect us. So certain smells, it wants us to say, hey, pay attention. This could get antsy. We need to be on guard. But at the same time, if I only had one negative experience associated with sauerkraut and all the other ones are happy, why, you know, why why do I keep to the negative? So, and, and the better example of that is, you know, the three men that molested me were Hispanic. So when I got to college and started seeing a lot of Hispanic people, I was terrified of them because, and and my ego was doing exactly what, these are Hispanic looking people. These, these could be, you know, be aware. And I would like literally cross 
to the other side of the parking lot. I, I mean, I would do things if um, they were in class. I'd make sure I was on the other opposite end of the room. I just stayed away like crazy. When I got into the workforce, I started working with them and started to get to know them. And they are friendly, happy, uh, loving men. And when now, even now, my ego, when it, I notice Hispanic men, I notice them. And that I've gotten to the place now, I notice them and it just melts away because I've had more positive experiences than negative experiences with Hispanic men. It's that, it's what I call reframing. And when we reframe a memory into something that is beneficial instead of something that hinders us, that's how we move through the healing process because that is feeling the angst, understanding where it comes from. And then applying the lessons you have learned since that original angst that occurred to say, I've learned over the years that that's not something I need to worry about. And immediately that fear melts away. But you have to do that arc. And it takes practice. And, you know, if, you know, had it been a Malaysian person, I've like no three Malaysian people. In, in the course of my life. So had it been Malaysians, it may have been more difficult for me to overcome than Hispanic people because they're more prevalent. But, you know, it those things that bring those triggers, those memories, whether they're emotional, traumatic, um, stress, you know, we for us to deal with stress, we have to know what stresses us out. You know, right. Is that is there that one person at work that no matter what? Whatever we do is not good enough or is not enough, and then we're going to feel negative about it. So if we know that that person does that to us, we need to understand they we turned in the assignment. It was what they wanted. You know, if they didn't give me direction to go above and beyond, even though I did a little bit, it has to be good enough. And their opinion of me does not reflect on my opinion of myself. Absolutely. No. You should be damn proud of yourself. <laughs> Thank you. How did your dad respond when you told him what happened? So, like I said, I got off the airplane, was in therapy, and the entire course of my therapy, I never talked about um, being raped. But about six months after uh, we came back, I did sit down to tell him and it could have been the most profound conversation I ever had in my entire life if I was paying attention. But I was so terrified of having to tell my dad that what happened that I didn't hear the wisdom in what he said. So he asked me, you know, you're in therapy. Is there anything more I can do? And I said, no. And he said, now what? What I what I thought he was asking was, you know, did I want to press charges? You know, what did you know, did I want to, you know, make sure that we filed paperwork so my mother could never see us again? And I, I said, I, I don't know what you mean. I, yeah, I don't want to press charges. He says, no, that's not what I mean. Now, what are you going to do? And I said, I guess I'm just going to keep going to therapy and, you know, go to school and do the best I can. And then we never talked about it again. I mean, it is literally my 50th birthday that I end up having another conversation to him that I'm writing my, a book. I'm writing a memoir about my experience. And I wanted him to know that I was doing this because we really haven't talked since that day. But what I didn't realize looking back now, the universe was with me trying to get to tell me that up until that point and for decades later, I was asking the wrong question. Because when you are traumatized, oh, for it doesn't even have to be trauma. When stuff happens in life, a lot of times we go into the why me question. Why me? Why did this happen to me? And when we do that, it's the wrong question. And the reason it's the wrong question is why me means that these happen here and our focus is then always on the past. Always. Because anytime you ask the question, why me? It's about the past. You don't ask why me about the future because you don't know what's happening yet. 
asking the question now, what, which is what my dad asked me. Dang it. I'm upset with myself that I wasn't aware enough to catch it then. But you know, now what means that from this moment forward, where am I going? How am I moving forward? What conscious decisions am I making so that I am moving in the direction I want to go? that I'm creating the life I want to live, a life that I'm proud of and a life that is passionate and fulfilling. And only now can I make those decisions about my future. So now what is the right question? Because the why me doesn't matter. And the reason I know the why me doesn't matter is because, you know, we all, one of the questions that stayed in my head, (laughs) you know, for decades was, why did my mother let this happen? Why did she do this? And man, I move through life and I get, you know, I get a phone call from my sister saying that my mother had passed away. And it had, we hadn't, I hadn't spoken to my mother in six years at that point. Um, the rest of my life after the traumatizing event, I saw my mother three or four times. That's it. Spoken to her on the phone but I only saw her three or four times. And the last time I spoke to my mom was six years before she died. So my sister calls, my mother has passed, and she had been dead for two months. Hmm. So, and and they didn't know she had next to Kim because she told the hospital that she had no children. Again, she abandoned us in her death. So it took two months for them to even find my sister. And so the state of New Mexico has all this paperwork. What do we want to do with the body? All this stuff. And I'm a good girl and I take care of my baby sister and I handled all the paperwork for all of that. And one of the things, you know, like three months later, I'm, you know, everybody's asking me, am I okay? Yeah. I haven't talked to her for six years who I know my mother was died years and years and years ago. And then three months into it, I realized, dang it, I'm never going to get the question answered as to why it happened. And I realized I'm I'm an optimist. <laughs> and I always made the assumption that my mother and I would reconcile to the point where she got invited to my first wedding and she came. And that was the first time I saw her after being traumatized. I went to visit her with my son when he was 18 months old because I wanted her to know she had a grandson and get to meet him so that, you know, she's still an alcoholic and she's still drinking so that at some point she would have more and more reason to want to stop. I then took a trip with her to Alaska. Um... Uh, that so that would have been three the total of three times that I saw her um, since the trauma. Every time I saw her, she would start drinking. She may go thirty six hours, she may go twenty four hours, but she was drinking. And interestingly enough, I had made a comment that when we went on the Alaska trip, um, she didn't drink, but she was smoking marijuana, so she was still high. <laughs> Um, so she, and I don't know if it's because I am the spitting image of my mother. Um, and I don't know when she, if she's looking at me, she sees herself and what she was or could have been and the alcohol. So she would start, you know, having to numb all that. So, you know, that, that is where we have been with my mom and my dad, um, and understanding that the why me question is not worth asking. Now what is the only way you can move forward? Because when you're depressed, the reason you're depressed is because you're looking at the past. The reason you're anxious is because you're looking in the future. But if you stay in the present moment, you have peace because Tiffany and I are having a fabulous conversation. All is well with the world for now. So staying in the present moment is what matters. Staying in the present moment is where you are actually the only place you can live. The only place you can be happy. You can't be happy in the past and can't be happy in the future. Your happiness is right now. I love that. That makes so (laughs) much sense. It really does. Like, yes. (laughs) 
So you said that you had made strict boundaries with your mom. What did you do for those boundaries since you didn't really talk that much? Was that part of the boundaries or? But actually, we did talk. We just didn't see each other. You know, so it. I saw my mom three times after the trauma. Um, and, and really and truly from the time, you know, from the time of my parents' divorce when I was eight, I didn't see my mother. However, you know, we, all of us have our parents' voices in our heads telling us things. And a lot of times my negative self-talk is in my mother's voice. Things she has said that, you know, still come up because we're always healing. We, you know, there's a lot of stuff happened between me and my mom, even though we did not um, see each other. And so her voice is there in my head. And one of the things that ended up happening was because she would call all the time. The first six months we got back, she wasn't calling. And then she called my sister and I made it very clear. I did not want to talk to my mother. So my sister had the phone rang. My sister answered it and she told me it was for me. At this point, I think I'm 16, 15, 16. And I go to the phone. It's my mother. And she you know, says hello to me. And the first thing that in my head that I hear is my grandmother's voice um, saying to honor thy mother and thy father. And so I'm going to be a good girl. And this is my mother. I'm going to talk to her. So, you know, she's talking. I'm responding. And I ask her how she's doing. And that question sets her off because if she was doing better, you know, she wouldn't be an alcoholic and she'd be still be married to my dad. And I'm the reason that they got divorced and you know, all this, all this stuff that she's spewing. It got to the place where I don't remember throwing the phone across the room. Um, I kind of hear myself screaming. I remember my dad picking me up and rocking me. And every time he went to lay me down, I'd start screaming again. So he rocked me. That was my first major emotional break because um, I, you know, I'm getting blamed for things that are not my fault. <laughs> and because of that, phone, my dad quit the phone calls with her and I ended up not speaking to my mother when Tammy graduated high school. She was talking to my mom and she was talking, making plans to go visit my mother. And I asked Tammy next time she called to let me talk to her, which Tammy thought was really strange because I haven't, I've spent years not talking to her. And I get on the phone with her and I am begging her to not allow Tammy to go visit that she was not good for Tammy and I, and for as if she really, truly loved us, she would absolutely not let Tammy go out to visit. Didn't happen. Tammy actually not just goes out to visit, but ends up living there. So spent a long time not talking to my mom again. And then I'm getting married. I invite her to the wedding, really, truly believing she's not coming. Showed up. <laughs> um, and. We had very little communication while she was there. I briefly spoke to her at the um, rehearsal dinner. Um, she was not around uh, the day, any part of me getting ready for the ceremony or anything like that. She was at the wedding. She came through the receiving line. And I did dance with her during, you know, at the mother, dan mother and child dance. I did dance with her. And I'm getting ready to leave and my mother's writing down to the car where I am and my sister's screaming at her don't don't do it don't do it don't do it and my dad I hear my dad saying let her go um, which I found really strange my dad told me later that he believed that it was the last time I would ever see my mother and this was her opportunity to speak to me because my mom was sober for, for this. So she, you know, is talking to me. She's thanking me. 
um, how proud she is of me, how smart I am, how beautiful I am. All those things that you want to hear from your mom, she got to tell me. Sober. <laughs> and, you know, so off I go. And that, I think because of that is why I agreed to go to Alaska with her. And I met her there and, you know, I left. So we didn't fly in together. Um, and it was a three-day trip. But I think the reason I was okay with that was because I heard that from her. So the universe, again, gave me something that I needed to switch that voice. But one of the things that's really hard about doing that is, especially when you realize you're the one pushing the play button, because, you know, you're, whoever caused your trauma isn't standing behind you talking to you, telling you all these things. Um, you have it recorded, and you keep pressing the play button. So if you keep pressing the play button, let's re-record something that's better. And that's something that's going to help you instead of harm you. And that's what I started doing. And with the pieces that my mother gave me to try to rewrite that self-talk. I'm so happy she did that. Just, you know, to give you some kind of mother mm -hmm. advice. You, <laughs> <laughs> you really did. And I guess you and your sister are still close. And uh my sister and I have a strange relationship. And what I mean by that, and if she hears this, <laughs> um, what I mean by that is there are pictures of her and I when we were little, before the trauma. And she's looking up at me with this awe. And one of the last things that she, when we were face to face, she said to me was how wise I was. And I never really understood until now, looking backwards, that she revered me because I was the one taking care of her. I wasn't trying to replace my mother, but in some aspects, I was her caregiver. Somebody had and I was her caregiver. And so when and you know, when we came back, she became the black sheep of the family. I became the good girl of the family. And, you know, because she was traumatized, she was abandoned, you know, so she had, she had some, not necessarily all of what I did, but she absolutely was abandoned, um, just like I was. And so she had her own issues that she had to deal with. So a lot of me taking care of my sister and the family calling me when things would get hairy with my sister, she resented is who am I to come in and try to do anything? And so there's some of that. But I think as we've gotten older, she realizes that, you know, I did things because of what happened to me. She's read the book and um, very, very understanding. But at the same time, we're completely different people. And we love each other. And when we're, you know, we want to hear about each other, but we don't live any anywhere the same. Our lives are so very different um, because everybody takes their own path. Right, right. Do you want to tell us about your book? So my book is called Raven Transcending Fear. It's back there. Um, <clears throat> it's on Amazon and um, it, you also can get it as uh, Kindle. But it is a teaching memoir. And what that means is I tell you the process I went through on my healing journey so that you don't have to go down into the pit of despair, that you can take the bridge that I I traveled already and I already laid out and you just follow that along that bridge with me and you can get to the other side of your healing journey. Because one of the things that we, uh, whether you've had trauma or not, but what a lot of people um, have issues with is what, that they're worthy. And, you know, if they don't do this or they were damaged or something bad happened and, you know, nobody's going to love me, all those negativities that we have, you need to understand that your worthiness has nothing to do with who you are or what you did. Look at a newborn baby. Nobody is going to say anything negative about that newborn baby. Everybody's going to love on that baby. And their worthiness is because of that little bundle of energy. 
And your worthiness is based on your bundle of energy that is different than anybody else's. And not what you did, not what you're going to do, not who you came from. You know, none of that matters in the grand scheme of things. Your healing journey is your path. And as you move across it, you want to take off the mask. You want to take the, off the armor and rediscover who you authentically are. Because the little girl in me that was damaged that day, you know, a lot of times people think we're broken. And for a long time, I thought I was broken. But I realized later on, as I was taking off the mask and armor, that I was never broken. I was always whole. The problem was I felt fragmented from all the masks and armor that was hiding my authenticity, that was hiding the light that I'm supposed to shine out into the world. And it's that is why we feel fragmented and feel disconnected from others, because we are trying to physically disconnect ourselves so that we don't make that authentic connection. But the moment you tell somebody about your trauma, about your pain, the moment you share that, it becomes freeing because now it's not a secret. It's now in the light. And when you bring things into the light, it always is, you get some relief from it. Absolutely. That's why I love what I do because everyone needs to tell their story because you're not the only one going through it. There could be someone else that's like, oh my gosh, I walk the same path. Mm -hmm. And it's nice for people to realize that other people go through things like I did or even worse. And look how great their life is now. Correct. You, know, you don't have to live in the dark. Absolutely. You want to tell us about your podcast? So my podcast is called Soul Solutions, and it is really only a 10, 15 minute show. And what I'm trying to do is tackle a specific subject and give you things that you can actually work through. So if you're struggling with stress, I give you, you know, pointers on how to deal with your stress and figure out what best way for you to decompress and, and live your a happy life. So short and sweet. I like it. <laughs> it's a lot easier to do 10 minutes. <laughs> no, that's great. I'm so proud of you. Thank you very much. Yes. Is there anything else that you wanted to share? Uh, so I am a life coach and I take um, all the things that I have learned over uh, the course of my life and I help you, uh, the listener, to overcome your fears and limiting beliefs. And you can reach out to me at terrykozlowski.com. I'm across all social media, uh, or you can email me at terry at terrykozlowski.com. And I'll make sure I add the links in the show notes. Fabulous. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Terry, for being on. I really appreciate it. And I think you are doing a fantastic job. So <laughs> thank you very much, Tiffany. It was a pleasure being with you today. Yes, for sure. Make sure to check out those links at the end of the show notes. You can also find my links there. That way it makes liking, following, subscribing, and leaving that five-star review that much easier. All right, you guys, we'll talk crime another time. Bye. Mm -hmm.